TED Audio Collective. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? To, will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Adam. If this is your first time listening to Work Life, don't start here. This is a bonus episode. To get the full work-life experience, start with How to Love Criticism, Your Hidden Personality, or The Creative Power of Misfits. I know you have some pet peeves. Everyone does. Mine include the guy in front of me on the airplane who reclines his seat right onto my laptop, the phrase, everything happens for a reason, and glitter. Whether it arrives on clothes or holiday cards or presents, it always ends up all over me. I'm pretty sure that in all of human history, no one has ever benefited from glitter. If a giant meteor destroyed the Earth, when the cockroaches died, the glitter would still be floating around. In my work life, my biggest pet peeve is management fads. They're the glitter of the working world, sparkly and ubiquitous, but often useless and annoying. Sometimes they're way out of date, like the Myers-Briggs personality tool. Other times they're fresh but sorely lacking in evidence, like using brain games for hiring. But fads don't just bug me because they're unhelpful. They can be actively harmful. Take the idea that you have a learning style. You're about to trash that, aren't you? I'm totally going to trash it. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with Ted. Sponsored by Accenture, Bonobos, Hilton, and J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. And management fads are a big reason why work often sucks. So I'm taking them on in this bonus episode. To do that, I got together with Stephen Dubner. You might know Stephen from the popular Freakonomics podcast and book series. I wanted to discuss with him, actually debate with him, the merits of certain fads in work life. So we sat down in Boston this spring during the MIT Sports Analytics Conference to hash it out. Hey, Stephen Dubner. Hi, Adam Grant. Why are you here? Why am I here in life? Yeah. Give me As more. in, why do you do what you do? Oh, oh, oh. So that was, I misinterpreted you. Yeah. Hi. By the way, hello, everybody. 
Um, why do I do what I do? So I'm a writer by training and by um, temperament and sentiment. So in my experience, most people who become writers uh, like me are people who are incapable of really doing anything useful. I can't make anything. I can't build anything. I can't solve any problems. And so I just follow around people who do those things. So I want to do some uh, some myth busting, okay. uh, but maybe also a little bit of fad busting. So uh, one of these that drives me crazy is open plan offices. Right. Basic idea is pretty simple, right? We want people to have more creative collisions. We want people to interact more. And then Ethan Bernstein just ran this experiment where a company went from cubicles to open plan. And people had 70% fewer face-to-face interactions afterward. And they sent more emails. And I, I think this was just throwing, them throwing their hands up and saying, I cannot handle all the overstimulation. I need to focus. So let me just get into a zone here and get out of my face. Um, why do you think this fad persists? I guess it's cheaper to have open plan offices. So I think that is a huge problem in any kind of you know, public health, public policy, et cetera, et cetera. So like, in terms of the open office thing, um, I don't think it's that complicated. So, so I know the Ethan Bernstein study and Ethan and somebody, who else was? Uh, uh, Stephen Turbin. Okay. And, um, and it was a really interesting finding to see that people wanted less face-to-face interaction. I mean, to me, there are a number of uh, substrata that are interesting to think about, including, well, wait a minute. Me personally, I hate face-to-face interaction. Um, not that I hate people, although eh, kind of, um, I, I like people individually, but collectively, uh, not so, in, 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 in practice, I like people in theory. I don't, I have so many questions right now, All but right. keep going. But, um, in terms of like why it persists, I actually do think that if you care about creating an office environment that works the best for the most people most of the time, it's not that hard. And I think a lot of modern office design is doing it now, which is basically yep. some kind of hybrid model. Yeah. I work mostly on my own about 94% of the time. And then the 6%, <laughs> I go in with my awesome crew and I kind of love it. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Th- so a couple of things. One, I think what you just said also goes to another Ethan study, which is that if you're working solo, uh, you have more great ideas, but fewer good ideas. And you get the opposite if you're brainstorming in a group, but you can get the best of both worlds with intermittent collaboration. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, that's kind of obvious, right? Like, of course, there are times when we need to be alone. There are times when we need to, to be in a, in a team. I think the mechanism, though, is really interesting that if you're in a, a team that's brainstorming together all the time, uh, the less creative people, they just copy the ideas <laughs> of the most creative people. Whereas if you let them work separately, they actually come up with ideas of their own and they're mm. able to enhance the creativity of the most creative people. That's really interesting. So would the mechanism by which they fail or by which they copy be that they are sort of intimidate, that they're, they're risk averse? I Is think so, the, yeah. Oh, uh, that's interesting. So I don't know if you've written about this or where I've read it, but um, I do know that like meeting culture generally, which, uh, you know, like it's, it's really easy to slam it because <laughs> it, it's been mostly bad for a long time. Although I do think that people are getting better at it. But one really basic piece of advice that I read that I thought was brilliant, so, so simple in retrospect, is what are the odds that the quiet, shy, non-bravado-possessing person has a worse idea than the noisy, cocky 
well, good presenting, well presenting person. And I would say probably the correlation is negative. In other words, if you're the kind of person who's quiet and thoughtful and maybe shy, you probably spend a lot more time actually thinking, period, just thinking, as opposed to the noisy people. And I don't want to... You just threw every extrovert under the bus. Well, the the thing that made me... the strategy that I thought was so simple and so brilliant is when you have the quiet person at a meeting or maybe the shy person or the young person or the less experienced person, it's very simple to say, you know, if after 15 minutes you haven't heard from that person, just invite them. Hey, uh, Harry, I haven't heard from you. What do you think about it? There are a million ways to do it that doesn't feel like singling out, putting you on stage. And if they don't want to contribute, then fine, they don't. But to be invited to do that, I think is because... Um, we once wrote a story about a hospital that was trying to increase hand hygiene rates. Mm-hmm. And the person who ultimately came up with the solution after many, many, many failures was the, the epidemiologist at the hospital who was just by nature a kind of studious, quiet person. But it took until all the noisy ideas had failed months and months before she even had the kind of, I guess, maybe courage. And I think that's an easily, it's an easy remedy to a problem that is pretty large. It is. I also, um, I've been, kind of toying with a few other solutions to this problem. Uh, One of them is to take these sociometric badges uh, that were invented at the MIT Media Lab, where you can have everyone in the room wear them. And then it displays in real time how much talk time each person is commanding. And you pretty quickly see like, wow, I'm the idiot who's dominating the conversation. I also, um, when I have groups brainstorm, I don't let people present their own ideas. I at least want to decouple, okay, who generated the idea and then, you know, who's selling it. And my hope is then if there's a really good presenter, every once in a while, a good idea will randomly land in their hands and they get to, that's they a, get to pitch it. That's a really neat idea. We know there's, there's zero, if not negative, correlation between the quality of your ideas and the quality of your, your pitching. I think there's a, there's a puzzle, though, for most of us who try to do creative work, which is we're pretty bad at judging our own ideas. I have a former student, Justin Berg, who, uh, who just finished some really interesting research where he shows that if you were to take all your ideas, let's say you've got 20 ideas for your next book, and you rank them from favorite to least favorite, your favorite idea is not your most promising. Uh, apparently, you're, you're too in love with it to see the flaws. It's your second favorite idea where you have a little bit more distance from it, you can see it more objectively, you recognize what's wrong with it, but you also have enough passion for it to want to fix it. And so... I'm, I'm getting afraid that people are going to start gaming this system and say, wait, so if I just take my favorite idea and rank it second, then I'm good. Uh-huh. So don't do that, right? <laughs> but how do you think about getting better at that calibration task and knowing when the idea you love is actually not that good? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question and hard. So I have a weekly show. There, there are a lot of things good and bad about that. Bad is that you need a good idea every week. And therefore, you're more likely to um, put up with an idea that really isn't that good. What's good is it is a deadline and it is an incentive to constantly work really hard to come up with good ideas. And so I'd say that for every idea that we end up doing, there were probably 10 to 20 that got into some stage of thinking about and were, were abandoned as being bad. But because of my structure in that, um, it's, there is a kind of mechanism for acceptance or rejection. But then, then there's a middle ground. Then there's an idea like, we'll have an idea, we'll start producing it, we'll start interviewing people, and it's just like boring. So for me, I have a very selfish set of criteria. It needs to be interesting to me. It needs to be potentially fun for me. And by fun, I don't mean like laughing fun. I mean like it has to be interviews that I look forward to doing. It has to be writing that I look forward to doing. So yeah, so I have what are for me internally a set of 
what seem to be fairly high bars. I'm sure they're not high at all, but you know, um, what I don't do too much is try to use listener data to determine topics. Because I think that while listeners might like that or might think they like it, I know I wouldn't after, I mean, some would, some of their suggestions I might love, but they would want to hear like 20 podcasts on universal basic income in a row. But really, the only people who really want to, there's really only like half a percent of people who want to hear that, but they tweet a lot. So that's what I mean by like figuring out what's noise and what's real magnitude and what's fake magnitude and so on. I would argue that there can be a really, really, really big benefit in not listening to or caring too much about what other people think about what you're doing, period. Because the minute you start to think, oh, will this be successful? Will it be popular? Will people think I'm uh, blank for asking that kind of question? Will they think I'm rude? Will they think I'm insincere? Whatever. Then it starts to get more and more and more middling, and then and, and we kind of do live in a world of a lot of middling stuff. You know? <laughs> I think that's right. Um, so uh, I want to uh, I want to get to a, a couple other fads because one of the things that drives me crazy as an organizational psychologist is walking into a company and finding out that they still use something like the Myers Briggs. It's kind of like driving a horse uh, in the era of cars. And like a horse was really great circa 1890, right? It was the fastest vehicle on the market. Except for the poop. A lot of poop problems. Quick public service announcement. And it's not about horse manure. We're not going deep on the Myers-Briggs here. If you want more on that, I did a whole episode on personality in season one. Before that, I wrote an open letter breaking up with the tool. And then another post called MBTI, if you want me back, you need to change too. In short, despite its popularity... The personality tool has some major reliability and validity issues, and it's lagging way behind contemporary science. So why don't fads like that die? Partially because of good marketing and the fact that people have invested time, money, and emotions in them. But it's also because middle managers are often reluctant to rock the boat. I talked with Stephen about how to change that. Because there's about half a century of, of evidence on uh, what you know probably is called middle status conformity coming out of sociology showing that uh, if you are at the top, you have very little to lose by taking a risk, trying something boldly creative. Um, and if you're at the bottom and you take a risk, you don't really have anywhere to fall. Like, but poor middle managers have spent hmm. 5, 10, 20 years working their way to that position. And they have a lot to lose by taking a risk. And they're also, of course, often selected to move up that way by their ability to conform and enforce routines and norms and rules. Um, do you have any thoughts on how to open the minds of middle managers? I mean, um, no. <laughs> That's not helpful. <laughs> but I mean... Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Dubner. <laughs> but the knee-jerk response would be, you know, incentives, because that's what, you know, economics believes in incentives. The problem is, when you talk to people in firms about incentives, they usually hear financial incentives, whereas, in fact, as you well know, and as you've shown in your work all over the place, there are all different kinds of incentives. There are social incentives and moral incentives and reputational incentives and so on. Um, and I do think that within firms, if we're talking about firms, and again, I, I've been around a lot of firms. I used to have a job a long time ago. I did not like having jobs, which is why I um, don't have one anymore. I'm also not good at having jobs um, because I like to say I like to say what I th- really thought at meetings, which I realize that's not what meetings are for. <laughs> 
I think what works really well, um, Colin Kammerer, whose work I'm guessing mm-hmm. you know well, um, Colin Kammerer is, I guess, an economist by training who is also yep. super mathematical and graduated college at the age of like eight or something. <laughs> and I was talking to him years ago about fame and how it's one of these very strange commodities that from afar, whether a foreign distance or a foreign time might seem to have great value, but that up close... Um, it's actually costly. And he said, yeah, that's why what you really want is local fame. Local fame, I've observed, not scientifically, but observationally over the years, local fame is incredibly powerful and desirable. It's why, like, you know, when you go home to your family and you've done something that they approve of, like, that feels incredibly good. And within a firm, even if it's within your little pod of five people or eight people, forget about the whole company. So I think recognizing that kind of incentive, uh, recognizing that kind of emotion and trying to turn that into an incentive is the way to basically help people feel good about taking a risk that might result in that. I, I also find myself thinking a lot about prospect theory here. And saying, okay, look, you know, we, we know from decades of, of Kahneman and Tversky that when people have a certain gain, they like to play it safe and protect it. And when people are facing a guaranteed loss, that's when they're willing to, to take a chance, right? So I, I find that a lot of middle managers are, are pretty happy with the status quo. And so trying to sell them on the benefits of a new practice or of walking away from an old fad, they're like, well, no, I, I kind of like things the way they are. Whereas if you can highlight the costs of, of sticking with the status quo and say, look, here's, this, this, here's why this is a horrible idea, um, then they either get really excited about changing or they get extremely defensive. It is remarkable to me that as customized as our culture has gotten in matching different things, right? So consumer preferences, you can act on them really specifically. Like to have a digitally, a digitally searchable universe of things that you need to acquire is a massively efficient upgrade over the way it used to be. I used to need a Sears catalog or whatever. And now, like, whatever I want, I can literally type it and find it. And so I feel like our mechanisms right now for matching people, a person, and all their intellectual and emotional, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, components to a work life that will be good for them and that they will be good at, I feel like we're really bad at that. Horrible. So what are you doing about that? Nothing. <laughs> no. no. Shouldn't that be like no, the grail of, of you, uh, your people? Uh, yeah, although I, I don't think the matching question is nearly as interesting as the changing question. Whatever job you land in, how do we both mold the job to you and help you mold yourself to be effective in that job? That would be to me a little bit like if we're going to use a sport analogy, be like, you know, I'm going to play eight sports when I'm young and I want to be a professional athlete. How do I decide? And at what point do I decide to devote all my resources to the one? I mean, I believe hugely in I don't like the word passion because it's come it's become just like a a greeting card word. But I do believe I do believe strongly in the idea of passion and that it's really hard to get good at anything unless you love doing that thing. Next fad. 10,000 hours. So misunderstood. The poor 10,000 hour rule has just been like like a piece of taffy or something. It's been pulled and stretched, then frozen and then melted. And like it's come to mean a very, very, very basic thing to most people, which it was never meant to mean. Okay. So I'm sure you've read the David Hambrick et al. meta-analysis looking at how much does deliberate practice really matter and showing that it, it's highly influential for, uh, for games, for, um, definitely for music as well. 
Uh, it explains less than 1% of the variance in professional performance, though. So, like, I know, you know, the work of Ander- and Anders Ericsson and his cohort, who did really, really great research in many, many domains. And basically, all they really argued was that if you want to be really, really good at something, you have to work really hard at it. Who knew? Right. Who knew? Earth-shattering revelation. And there was one kind of paradox in there, which is that people who are innately really gifted, if they don't work hard, they're probably not going to end up being really good. So that is a little bit counterintuitive. But, I mean, genes are killer people, and not just in physical stuff also. So really, I mean, if you read books like yours or read a book like Angie Duckworth's book, Grit, what you find is that people who get really, really, really amazingly good at something, they kind of did it all. Often, or at least, you know, if there, if we want to make like five dimensions on which we're going to measure accomplishment, they were like at least a seven out of 10 on all five. So yeah, um, being, um, you know, fairly talented and and really lazy is almost never going to work. But being really, really hardworking at, let's say, basketball, if you're not, you know, somewhat talented is also not going to work. So I'm trying to learn to be a good golfer. That brings us to another fad, learning styles. You're about to trash that, aren't you? I'm totally going to trash it. Mm-hmm. You see this in education a lot. It's found its way into the workplace. And so what you're supposed to do is first find out, am I a kinesthetic, auditory, or visual learner? But I'm supposed to digest that information you know, through the, the learning style that's comfortable for me. And um, Harold Paschler and his colleagues did a massive review of all the evidence for decades, and they found no compelling evidence whatsoever that your so-called learning style has any implications for your actual learning. And I think some of that might be because, you know, if we think about it, there are probably times when you learn something better when it's harder for you, right? The, the more you have to struggle to comprehend something, the, the more you actually internalize it, as opposed to saying, ah, this is a breeze, I don't really have to think about it much. The other thing that I think is fascinating about learning styles, though, is that some of it is just there's some tasks that are better learned in one medium than another. Um, so actually, let's, let's ask the audience to try something for a second. Uh, can I ask all of you to think of a language that you speak fluently? Stephen, do you speak any languages other than English? Barely English, no. Okay. No others, yeah. Uh, those of you who do, think of a language uh, that you speak other than English, if you do. And let's, uh, let's take French for those of you who are looking for a language. I want you to picture a perfect French accent. Okay, that didn't work, did it? Try drawing it. Okay, it doesn't work in the visual medium, does it? Okay, wait, now. Try to do it kinesthetically. Can you stand up and act out a perfect French accent? Of course not, right? You have to hear it. And I think so many tasks work that way. That You didn't give that. Somebody was about to stand do you and think? be French. Right? Yeah, there it. you go. Um, but I think that there are a lot of tasks that actually work that way, right? There's some, some things we just have to learn by doing them and others that we have to learn by hearing them or reading them. And so I, I would just love to know, how do we get this particular myth to go away? So I trust you and believe you, but I'm not sure I fully embrace the concept There is an outfit that's now called, I think, New Classrooms. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but um, it operated from a very basic idea, which is basically the idea that you're trashing, which is that there are different, quote, learning styles. But basically, there were some educators who looked at kids trying to learn math. And these were Mm -hmm. mostly kind of kids who didn't come, low-income, low-education kids, and they were getting really, really stuck on math in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, whatever. And um, 
the guy who originated it looked at what was actually happening in a classroom. You've got 30, let's say, kids and one instructor and one mode of instruction, which is to illustrate it and describe it and then let the participants kind of practice it and master it. Mm -hmm. And they all have to go at roughly the same pace. What are the odds that that's going to work out really well? So you could, it's very easy to imagine how it wouldn't. So what he did is he totally fractured it and said, we're going to take smaller groups, split them up, and we're going to offer a, a bunch of different modalities of learning. Yeah. Some kids will do group learning, peer-led, teacher-led, virtual learning, game playing, blah, blah, blah. And then every day, every kid gets tested in that area mm -hmm. to see how they did using which modality of learning. And then the next day, overnight, the algorithm writes your playlist for the next day to see what modality should you use to learn the next lesson. And his, that program showed really impressive gains because it seems to say to me, and again, you may, you may know more than I, or you may just disagree with it. It would seem to say that in that case, for 11-year-old kids learning math, indeed, there are some people, maybe it's not a learning style, maybe yeah. it's just like a personal comfort thing. Maybe they didn't like being surrounded by kids that they felt were smarter. Maybe they didn't like <laughs> yeah. listening, maybe they hated the teacher. So it may be really hard to or disentangle maybe, that. Maybe it's even just a Hawthorne effect, right? That somebody right. paid attention to them, they let them be a little more engaged or exercise some some individual discretion or preference, and then they're like, hey, this is more fun, it's not as bad as I thought. I agree. So again, I totally believe, you know a lot more about this than I, so I totally believe that what you're saying is true, but I would be a little bit hesitant to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I like living in a world yeah. where people not only have different capabilities, but different ways to exercise those capabilities. So again, I'm nothing, but I'm going <laughs> to stick with my story. Uh, I, I, I like your heuristic <laughs> of deferring to the expert, yeah. almost deferring. But it's, I show very high emotional intelligence clearly, by doing so, don't clearly. I? Clearly. <laughs> I learned something here. It, it's interesting to me, though, that when I, hear, when I hear you talk about that, I'd say, all right, you know what? If you think about this, uh, heterogeneity is a source of freedom. That's a good thing. What I worry about with learning styles is that they actually restrain people, right? So I, I have people come into my classroom all the time who will say things like, well, I'm, I'm just not an auditory learner. So, you know, I can't listen to a lecture. And yeah, the reality is, well, either the lecture needs to be better or we should find some ways for you to pay attention differently, right? There, there's no reason why somebody should get away with saying, this is not the way that I like to learn well, and therefore I can't learn what do you mean get away with? Like you're worried that they're scamming you somehow? No, I'm or? worried that they're limiting their own learning and they're closing the door to different ways of engaging because they say, ah, I prefer to engage right. this way. That doesn't mean I can only learn that and way. And your view is that they just, they have some aversion to it and if they worked at it, they would master it. Yeah, or yeah. just that you yeah, don't I have definitely, to... I definitely disagree with you on this you one. Do. Yeah, yeah, totally. Because I think about podcasts. So I make podcasts, but I do not like podcasts. I'll say it right here. I do not enjoy <laughs> listening to podcasts. They're too slow. Like That's why we listen on 2X. No, don't no, you? no. 2X just then makes it chipmunky. That's no better. What I mean by what I mean by it is they the amount of for me useful and or entertaining and or chuckle producing information that they deliver per second is really low for me. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think you're listening to the wrong podcast, Stephen. Well, yeah, I know I've tried a few. So, um, so anyway, no, and I realize some of them are awesome. Um, but I love reading the transcripts of those same podcasts that I wouldn't want to listen to. Why? Because I can read a lot faster and I can skim and scan. So are you telling me that I'm, I should just like get with the program and learn to listen slowly and be bored? No, no definitely not. Right, so, what I'm telling you is, though, that your learning actually might not be better in that reading and skimming that you're doing 
you might enjoy it more, right? But you're not necessarily getting more out of it. I'd also say that what I've learned to love about listening to podcasts is I can listen when I'm at the dentist or when I'm taking out the garbage. I just love being able to learn and listen without having a screen. Okay, so I go back to the source. I make it a point to not go to the dentist. (laughs) I don't take out my own garbage. So I I really feel like I'm solving your problems for you here by a different means. Mission accomplished. One more thing before we wrap. Uh, Since since you're, uh, you're trying to master golf, um, I have a very strong feeling that golf is not a sport. It's a game. Um, and my rule is that if you can be drunk and still play it well, it's not a sport. And so golf belongs in the category with billiards and darts and poker. Uh, agree or disagree? A um, lot of people like to have the sport versus game <laughs> argument. It's been going on in my circles for many years, and it includes NASCAR and Formula One, da 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 da, da and everybody has their view on it. Um, I don't really, I don't really care. Um, I, I will tell you something of more probably um, importance than my opinion is that my co-author on Freakonomics uh, stuff, Steve Levitt, wrote a really nice paper um, about poker uh, that ended up being significant in a legal argument um, about whether it was a game of chance or a game of skill. So that's a different argument than whether it's a game or a sport. Um, but poker, I think anybody who knows even a little bit of poker has to, uh, has to acknowledge that there's a fair amount of skill involved. So if you want to call golf a game as opposed to a sport, I'm totally fine with that. The one thing I will yes. challenge you on is um, nobody plays it as well drinking. <laughs> And I know that because almost everybody I play with except me does drink when doing it. And that's why I play with them is because they're all better than me. But because I know they're going to be drinking, I know that by the time we get to the end, I will be better than them. So that's um, I feel bad that you've spilled my strategy. But that's the only way I can beat people is to have them drink. Then my work here is done. Thank you. I Thanks, Stephen. This was yeah. fun. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Worklife is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Angela Chang, and Janet Lee. This bonus episode was produced by Jessica Glazer and Dan O'Donnell. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Thanks to MIT for hosting our discussion, and to Stephen Dubner for joining. And thanks to you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the show. It helps people find us. What is your take on emotional intelligence? I would argue that mine is relatively low. I don't know what to make of that, because if if you said yours was high, I would say that's a sign that it's low. I knew you would say that, though. (laughs) 